The rest of us, go ahead and grab a Bible and turn to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one within reach. Definitely look around and grab one so we can follow along in our studies. We continue in our time of worship through the hearing and the study of God's inerrant word. Romans chapter 8. As you're turning there, welcome to everyone. Good to see you. Good to have everybody here this morning for our time of worship as God's people. Day, the Lord's Day, we get to set aside, to push pause on life and worship our risen Lord together. Romans chapter 8, we're in a verse-by-verse study through this book. Here at Cornerstone, we uh, do our best to take the Word of God seriously, God's revealed and errant Word, and one way we attempt to do so is through the expository study, verse-by-verse study and unpacking of God's Word. Uh, We're in Romans chapter 8, having started in chapter 1, verse 1. Romans chapter 8. Bow with me for a quick word of prayer, if you would, please. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. It is food for the soul. We shall not live by bread alone. I pray you would give me words to speak. And your spirit would give ears to hear in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it was Pyongyang, North Korea. The year was 1987. In the hermit kingdom, as it's known. And South Korea, their close rival, was experiencing quite a bit of national prominence, among other things. They had the 1988 Seoul Olympics that they had won. And in an apparent move to show them up, in an attempt to show them up, North Korea decided they would build the biggest hotel in the world, tallest and the largest hotel on earth. They broke ground on what was called the Rugyong Hotel. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that. My Korean is not good. The structure of the Rugyong Hotel is bizarre. Futuristic, but kind of weird futuristic. Talk about that in a minute. The plan was to have a 3,000 room hotel room with five revolving restaurants at the top, over 1,000 feet tall. It was supposed to open two years after construction, but it took until 1992 to reach its designed height of 1,083 feet, about 20 feet taller than the Eiffel Tower. However, not only was it a couple years off track, And reaching that height, it actually never became a hotel. The structure did and does stand at 1,083 feet in downtown Pyongyang. It is a 1,083-foot-tall concrete triangle, about a 75-degree triangle. No windows, no hotel, no furnishing, no carpet, no nothing. Just a massive, not very attractive, hollow, concrete 
triangle-ish tower. That is also supposedly structurally extremely dangerous. Why this triangle pyramid shape? North Korea cut themselves off from the world. And so in this time, at that time, they had very little access to an important material called steel. Steel is very important to build skyscraper-type structures to reinforce concrete. Those of you who are builders, you know way more about that than I do. You need lots of steel for such a structure. North Korea, again, having cut themselves off, had none. And because a little event in 1991 happened where the Soviet Union, to which North Korea was attached, they fell, this further complicated their access to expensive building materials. So North Korea had to dredge the rivers over and over and over and over again to get an incredible amount of concrete. Finally, in 2008, enough money was amassed to cover up the windowless, furnishingless, everythingless except for concrete structure with glass and metal panels. However, inside is a 3,900 square foot unfurnished concrete hollow structure, a ghostly unfinished to 1980s standard. The hotel today is nicknamed the Hotel of Doom. Not a single person has ever hoteled there. Today, North Korea at times uses the exterior of the building as a backdrop for propaganda, media, and flying their flag. A work that began but never finished. Unfinished work. Fallen and perfect men might not be able to finish ambitious projects like the largest hotel in the world. Great projects, whatever it might be. But when it comes to our great God, when God sets out to a far more important work than building a hotel, but saving the soul, he will never walk away from the project. God will never run out of resources. God will never get tired, forgetful, exhausted, exasperated, and say, well, I just cannot possibly finish this work. When God sets out, as we've been seeing in Romans 8, 29 and 30, among other places, when God sets out to forgive someone and save someone, call someone to salvation, justify them, glorify them, God will never walk off the project and leave it unfinished. He always completes the work he begins. Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. When God predestines and foreknowns, he will call, justify, and glorify. God will never put his hand in the dish, as it were, and fail to bring it back to his mouth, as the writer of Proverbs tells us. John 10.27, as we read, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give eternal life to them. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. There will never be a single person who was a, I used to be saved. That will never happen. There will never be a soul that is unfinished, a once was justified or foreknown. Because when the sovereign God sets out to save, 
He never gets tired. Look at our universe. God didn't leave it unfinished. It works pretty well. While you were laying down unconscious for how many hours you were last night, stuff was working because it's not unfinished. How much more souls that God loves more than stars and galaxies and meteorological systems? No unfinished business when it comes to salvation. John 6, 37, a verse we've been looking at often in Romans, our study in Romans 8, 28. All Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. We will, Lord willing, finish this study of Romans 8, 29 to 30, looking at the fourth and fifth link of what's called the golden chain of salvation. Look at Romans 8, and I'm going to jump around and read a couple of verses just to remind ourselves of the context in case you haven't been with us. I'm going to read Romans 8, 1, then 18, 19, then we'll jump to 28, 29, and 30. Romans 8, 1, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That phrase actually, in Christ Jesus, is for a while in the first century, might have been even a more common term than Christian. To be a believer is to be in Christ, attached to him, united to him, joined to Christ. Verse 18, Paul says, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God for the creation, verse 20, was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those who, just, who he justified, he also glorified. This is the reading of God's word. If someone were to ask, okay, what is Christianity? Not what does culture say it is, what does a particular sect of a political party say it is at a given time in a given century, but objectively, the unchanging fixed definition. What, how could we say that? One way would be Christianity is the term that merely describes the system of God's love and grace displayed toward a fallen Sinful human race through the person, the life, crucifixion, and resurrection and reign of the God-man, Jesus Christ, as revealed inerrantly in the 66 books of the Bible. That'd be a way to kind of sum up what is it. Not what do people say it is, but what is it. All other systems of spirituality or religious philosophy are not from God. They do not have their origin in God. They have their origin elsewhere. But biblical Christianity, as revealed in Scripture, it alone is from God. It, it's the answer to the question, do we have words from God that have not been corrupted, changed, altered? If so, where are they? Answer, yes. And here, 66 books of the Bible. And then the answer to the question, okay, what's the greatest need of the human race? 
salvation as revealed in Scripture, for God to act, to reconcile us to him, to rescue us from the penalty and power of our sin. This is, this is what repairs the human being. And then the other question that one might ask, has God done anything about this? He has. He alone did it. He could. Where is a good place in the Bible to start reading about this? Romans, where we've been for a bit now. The book of Romans is one of those 66 books given by God, which explains infallibly the heart of God towards sinners, the Christian message. And even more, zeroing in, Romans 8, 29 to 30 really is a very condensed form explain, explaining that God, motivated by his mercy for his glory, God has acted in these five things that he has done and expressing his love, his grace to the human race, the Christian message. The Christian message could be summed up in verse 29 to 30. And you probably notice these five kind of power words, these things that God has done. Foreknown, foreknowledge, predestined, called, justified, glorified. The Christian message is not first and foremost, what do we do? What should we go out and be about? It is first, what has God done? The creator of the universe, what has he accomplished? And this passage is nicknamed the golden chain because it's so significant. Individuals like William Perkins wrote a book after it in the 1500s, called it the golden chain. And so this passage has been nicknamed the golden chain. These five links of the chain, verse 29, he foreknew, number one, he predestined, second link, number three, he called, verse 30, those he called, he justified, fourth link, and those he justified, he glorified, fifth link. If you rightly understand these things, you will subsequently rightly understand 30 or 50 other things about God and the truth of the Christian message. But if we wrongly understand these things, we will wrongly understand 30 to, or more other things about Scripture. So the golden chain of salvation. What has God done? Explained here in verse 29 to 30. These are five actions of salvation in meeting our greatest need. Two of the five, as we see, and we're in part four of the study of verse 29 to 30, by the way. If you haven't been with us, you can get the messages uh, from previous weeks online. Two of the first five things, verse 29, look there. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Those God did in eternity past before he created the universe. For each individual he saved. Two of them, the next two, God does in the individual, every individual's lifetime. He calls those whom he predestined, he also called. Verse 30, those who he called, he also justified. Those are performed on the individual. Those happen in the individual's lifetime. And those, the very last one, those he glorifies, those he justifies, he glorifies. This is in the future when we meet Christ, those who know him at death. So God is the being who is the only being who is timeless from eternity to eternity which is what it means to be God, and therefore he is capable of doing these things. The golden chain of salvation. We've seen an outline, some hooks to hang our thoughts on in the study. We're looking at five actions of God's sovereign grace in salvation, which emphasize the security 
of the believer. Five actions of God's sovereign grace in salvation which emphasize the security of the believer. We've seen number one, and again, this is that's kind of a mouthful. In other words, five things God does to meet humanity's greatest need. We've seen number one, he foreknew those he would save. He foreknew those he would save. Verse 29, those whom he foreknew. And that comes from a rich biblical terminology, not just to be aware of, but that Greek, the, 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 the Greek word know comes from the Old, Old Testament. This idea of knowing, it means to set committed love upon. In eternity past, God set his love on his people. The second action in salvation, you notice they're linked by this word also. They're inseparable. Those whom he foreknew, verse 29, he also predestined. Number two, he predestined those whom he would save. He predestined those whom he would save. Which just is to say that the the Greek word predestined means to foreordain something. Third, this third action, those whom he predestined, he also called. Verse 30, we studied this in detail last week. He effectually calls. He awakens us from spiritual dead. Make us alive to Christ. And here's where we left off. Number four. The fourth action of God's sovereign grace and salvation, he justifies those he saves. This will be found in verse 30. He justifies those he saves. So you see that all these are linked by the word also. This is emphasizing God never walks away from this project, namely from any soul whom he saves. Never walks away. Foreknown, also predestined, those who predestined, he also calls, those he calls, he also justifies. So the fourth link in God's plan of meeting our greatest need is salvation, he justifies those he saves. Look at verse 30. We haven't studied this idea of justify since way back in chapters 3 to 5. So I want to spend a little time reminding us, or maybe this is the first time if we haven't been here. Justifies, the fourth link. Those he calls, he also justifies. There's also a logical progression in order here. Justification. This answers the single most important question, the human race. I think it's very helpful, those of us who are believers in Christ, as we, as we talk to those who are not yet, this is a great way to synthesize it. The most important dilemma for the human race, how could we, Any unbeliever even will admit we're imperfect. How could we as imperfect fallen people ever stand right with a perfect holy God, a God of justice, who have flagrantly violated his law? How is that problem solved? Justifies. Justification is the problem. Now, of course, when we're sharing this with an individual, they might not realize, well, why am I fallen? God has a standard summarized helpfully, not only in, but one place in the Ten Commandments. God has a universe, we live in it, in his universe he has a moral law binding on all of us. If obeyed would be the happiest, any society that obeyed these would be the happiest, most joyful, peaceful, upright society ever. The Ten Commandments, there are, and remember with all the you shall nots, there's a coinciding you shall. 
God's, paraphrased God's commandments, worship God only. Don't try to fill that, fill that God-shaped void in your heart with anything that's created, only God. It'll only result in emptiness if you do. Don't take God's name in vain. Speak of him reverently because you revere him in your heart. Fourth commandment, the idea is to pause on life and how important we think we are and everything we need to do. Pause and trust God that he can provide when we take a break and worship him. Fifth commandment, honor your parents even though they are imperfect. Sixth commandment, never murder someone with your hands or your heart, indeed, or in your thoughts. Next commandment, any type of sexual thought, desire, action is to be exclusively expressed in marriage, a monogamous marriage, a man and a woman. Don't steal. Never take anything that's not yours. Always speak the truth. And don't covet, or in other words, be as thankful to God as God deserves for us to be thankful. I look at that law and it's not hard to see. I am flatly condemned, thoroughly guilty. Our condemnation necessitates and When we see that condemnation, it's like, okay, that's my greatest problem. I've repeatedly violated these. This is what necessitates justification. That word justify, verse 30, those whom he calls, called, he also justified. That word justify is taken from, uh, it's a term from the ancient law courts that means to declare in the right, to declare righteous, to declare no longer condemned, not even neutral, but law-abiding and perfectly so. A gavel declaration was the idea. In, in ancient times, it was a picture in the law courts. Justification meant a criminal who had high-handedly broke laws, flagrantly violated the, the standards of the law, and this criminal stands before a court and a judge, and the judge is perfect, he's righteous, he shows no favoritism, never takes bribes, and though the criminal was guilty and condemned and sentenced to execution, the judge hammers down the gavel and says, no condemnation, righteous, law-fulfilling, law-abiding, not because the judge just had a good feeling one day and said, oh, I feel like letting you off the hook, not at all, but because... The picture is of a righteous substitute, an individual who had perfectly kept the law, had perfectly obeyed the commands of the land, and and this substitute says, judge, I will pay the penalty that the law demands for this guilty criminal. Hold me accountable for their violations and do like an exchange. Give them the reward I earned by my perfect law abiding. Give me, the punishment they deserve through breaking the law. And on that basis, not fiction, the criminals declared righteous, law-abiding. This is what this term in, in ancient times, when the Romans would read this, this is what would come into their mind. Just, justification, then, is the photonegative of condemnation. Condemnation means the judge's declaration of guilty standing, Justification means the judge's declaration of righteous standing. Condemnation refers to the court's pronouncement of 
sentence to penalty for violation of the law. Justification refers to the court's pronouncement of freedom for fulfillment of the law. Romans 3.24. This is what happens to a believer, beloved. Romans 3.24. Being justified by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Now, how does this work? As we bring this term in to a sinner standing before God, justification means this. It's the gift of God's grace where, consequent of our faith in Christ, not our works, God the Father declares the sinner righteous in Christ and forever considers them as if they had lived Christ's life when he was on earth and had not violated the commandments. Now, when you're talking to someone about this, if they're thinking thoroughly and justly, they would say, how could that be? Isn't that like a corrupt judge who just sees a criminal and says, well, that, you know, that's my nephew. I'm just going to sweep the, his record under the rug. Some have objected even in history and said, oh, that's convenient that, that you Christians, that you would say that God just kind of waves a magic wand at you and then look, you're right before God even though you've broken his commands. A charge has come throughout history that this is called forensic fiction or legal fiction. It's God waving a wand. That's like a corrupt judge and that's a severe misunderstanding. I want to give a couple of words perhaps by way of reminder, to clarify how justification works. Justification, very important we understand, is imputing, not ignoring. It is imputing, not ignoring. This is how God is not a corrupt judge in it. Imputing, not ignoring. God doesn't ignore sin. Christ is this righteous substitute. God really became a man, really walked on the earth, really was under, under the burden and the commitment and the responsibility to keep God's moral law, the Ten Commandments, in thought, motivation, nature, word, and deed. And he really did keep it perfectly. This is why God had become a man, because no man could do this. He actually did keep the law, and he did for one reason, so that... Our problem of being guilty under the law could be justly solved through imputing, not ignoring. So what happens is Jesus goes to the cross so that he will be held accountable. He willfully goes to the cross to be held accountable in our place for the violations of the law that everybody who would ever believe in him and go to heavens had committed. Everyone who will ever believe on Christ and end up in heaven Jesus says, Father, hold me accountable. Do not ignore sin. We know that that cannot happen. That's impossible. Punish me for them. And so Christ was, as he was often called, his nickname was, you remember his nickname? The Lamb of God. Referring back to the Old Testament sacrifices, the Lamb was the substitute upon whom symbolically the sinner would guiltily place their hands, transfer sin, atonement. Christ is the real. You need, a, you need a human, not a lamb, a human to stand in for a human. And so this imputing, not ignoring is double. There's a double imputation. 
First Peter 3.18 says, Christ died for sins once for all the just, him, Christ, for the unjust, us, who would put faith in Christ, so that he might bring us to God. So the first imputation, imputation just means counting, reckoning, crediting. Our sins are imputed to him. They're not ignored. Christ really lived perfectly that he would be qualified to be the Lamb of God. They're counted on him. They're punished in him. That's the first part of imputation. And then the second part, because that Christ's death satisfies the demands of the law for a penalty. His death wipes away our penalty. We're neutral, but we still need a righteousness that satisfies the demands of the law to meet God's moral requirement. That's the second part of imputation. When the sinner puts faith in Christ, God the Father imputes or credits the righteousness that Christ earned in his law-abiding perfection to us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become, exchange, the righteousness of God, how? In him, united to him. That's the double imputation. By faith, we're justified, meaning imputing, not excusing or ignoring. Our sins imputed to Christ, Christ's righteousness imputed to us. This is the truth that God's people have white-knuckled since it's been revealed by God throughout the millennia because we understand how could a sinner ever stand right before God? Imputing, not ignoring, beloved. Those whom he called, he also justified. Now also, not only imputing, not ignoring, Immediate, not gradual. Second, it is immediate, not gradual. Justification is. It's a gavel coming down. It's not the judge saying, well, we'll see how you do in the next 10 years if you're, if you're gooder enough. It's immediate, not gradual. Having been justified by faith, Romans 5.1, we have peace with God. Justified. You... you, you it's so immediate that it's like you inhale condemned and you exhale justified. You sit, a guy sits down to read his Bible, reads a couple verses, condemned, stands up, having put faith in Christ, justified. It is immediate because it is based on the past work of Christ. Three, it's a declaration. It's a declaration, not a making a declaration, not a making. What does that mean? It's, it's not saying we are, justification is not we're made progressively righteous. That's sanctification. It's a declaration of your standing. It's not how you're going to live. It's how God sees you because of that double imputation in Jesus Christ. Fourth, grace, not works. Grace, not works. Grace, unmerited favor. We're, we're condemned. We could never, our works will just compound sin. Romans three twenty seven. a man is justified by faith apart from works. Irreversible, not losable. I'm making up words here that might not be in the dictionary. Irreversible, not losable. Perhaps we should say not temporary. Maybe, I don't know. 
irreversible. This can't be changed. He who began a good work in you, God's not going to be like this wrong yang or whatever it's called hotel and walk away. Why? Because your justification does not depend on what you do. It depends on what Christ already did. His perfect life lived, death on the cross, resurrection, reigning. That's not reversible. This can't be undone in time. And we have to keep moving along here, but undeserved, it's undeserved. Nothing we could do to deserve such love. I mean, who, who has done that in history? Well, God the Father does. I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to take my most beloved possession, my son, and I'm going to hang him on a cross for stuff that you did. That's, uh, that's another level of love and undeservedness. We're not like that at all. Freedom giving. Freedom giving. This applies to everyone. Freedom giving. Justification is freedom giving. And, and teens and younger people, a word for you for just a quick moment. Justification and the golden chain of God's salvation is the most practical truth in the world for you, for you teens and young people. It's the most practical, helpful thing you'll ever hear and know of and have. About 100 years ago, when I was a teen, I remember how it was, and you know how it is, where, I mean, you have great pressure on you, and, and it's difficult. You know, there's this pressure to like fit into an identity or pressure to be liked or feel accepted and the teenage pride that we all have, you know, fuels this to have status and, and, and to have acceptance by either the things we do or how we look or how good we are at sports or the grades we get or, you know, how popular we are, who likes us, who gives us attention. And, and then there's this pressure to like create an identity for ourselves for acceptance, the burden of, okay, what identity is cool at the moment now in time and this part of the subculture, I got to like morph to that identity. And I mean, this is just a burden of slavery that's put on young people and teenagers in our society and it's crushing. And sadly, some young people do terrible things to themselves or at least are tempted to or terrible things to others just as a release of the fissures coming up from this pressure. I remember how it was to, to try to cope with this. I was far from a Christian in my teens. I didn't grow up with any biblical Christianity. And I, there's just this, how do I deal with this? And, you know, it can feel good when you kind of get some of that approval. And, but that just fuels what's wrong with us and doesn't, doesn't solve the problem. It exacerbates it. But the truth of justification and the golden chain is just the destroyer and the freer and the healer and freedom giver of this enslaving temptation. Why? Because justification unmasks the superficial facade of all the temptations and says, look, infinitely more valuable than having, you know, acceptance from this fickle subculture of high school or culture or, or, or these friends or this sports or whatever it might be, way more valuable than that. The one who made the oceans and the mountains and the one before, before whom we'll all stand and die, he said, before we are even alive, he said, I'm going to step out of heaven and live to precisely not be accepted by people. 
to be the unpopular one, to be repudiated and be completely rejected and hated so much that they nailed him to a cross. That, that, you talk about rejection. And he did this out of love, though we never did a thing for him, to be punished for our sins and for those things that we feel so much pressure to like give into. And so this justification is so freeing for young people, free from being consumed with, okay, am I awesome enough in front of my friends? Am I awesome enough in my grades and my sports and awesome enough in my looks, performing enough, blah, 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 how enslaving that is. Justification says, look, you can never be good enough. And that's okay because Christ was. He obeyed God's law, died on the cross in my place, rose from the grave, and we can repent of performance enslavement and trust in the awesomeness of Christ in our place. And instead of the crushing weight of, okay, what do I need to do to identify today so I'm accepted and then tomorrow, we can hear from God in justification and say, look, I, I love you. I accept you in Christ and free you from that so that you can rest and identify in, rest in and identify in what matters far more now and in the eternity Christ, united to him. This is justification. This is the answer to everything. And it is the answer to these crushing burdens that you young people face and older people face and our own sins that crush us. And God offers this justification to identify and join to Christ freely by faith. Those whom he calls, notice verse 30, those whom he called he also justified. It's by faith alone in Christ alone. You can receive it right now, today, whether you're young or old, or in between, or something else. It is by faith alone. Romans 5.1, again, having been justified by faith, not our works, we can have peace with God. And that is true peace, soul-filling, burden-lifting, conscience-resting Peace that just chucks all the pressures outside of us that tell us, you better do this, you better do that to, to, to be acceptable or whatever. Just, we have peace with God through justification. Things that run us ragged. Temptations and the pressures that are unbearable. Now how, I know what some of you are thinking, We've been seeing in Romans 8, 29 to 30, and even before, that the human being is naturally dead in sin. So how can someone put faith in Christ if we're, as Romans 3, 10 to 12 says, we're not even seeking him. We're dead in sin. How does that happen? Effectual call, right? Look back at verse 30. Those whom he predestined, he also called. There's a logical order here. Here, we just talked about that last week. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Turn to Ephesians 2 real quick. Just go forward a few books. Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. Look at Ephesians 2. I want us to see something amazing about the grace of God. Ephesians 2, verse 1. Here's what I want us to see. Faith, the faith through which justification comes, is a consequence of, of 
this calling or effectual call. Prove it. Romans, excuse me, Ephesians 2.1. You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you formerly walked. Not, well, on life support or hobbling along with crutches. Dead in sin. End of verse 3. We were by nature children of wrath. So that's before, that's in our life. But notice verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, that's talking about foreknowledge, the love he set on us long ago. Being rich in mercy, even when we were dead, notice, when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive. It doesn't say our decision made us alive. No, he made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace. He wants to emphasize this is God's unearnable favor when we could not do it and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places so that is that verse 5 made us alive that's a factual call that we saw in Romans 8 30 those whom he called made us alive now what's the consequence of that verse 8 for by grace Paul can't go many verses without saying that this is all God's doing in other words By grace you have been saved. And notice, but we do have a part through faith. That's our part. And then he says, this, but this, not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. So he's saying, even faith, the faith that you put in Christ, is a gift of God. How does that gift come? Verse 5, by making us alive in Christ, a.k.a. the effectual call which in verse 30, those whom he called, he also justified. So faith is right between there, call and justify. Do you see that? Faith is the gift of God. Verse 9, not of work so that no one may boast. Faith is not a work. Faith is a gift of God. Faith is the always knee-jerk response that the made-alive soul has once made alive. Imagine someone who is drowned and they're pulled out of the water and they're pulled onto the beach and there's someone smart like who knows CPR like Hannah and she resuscitates the individual and brings him back to life. What's the first thing that newly made alive person does? They cough up water. They're made alive through someone else's resuscitation and the first thing to do is cough. So it is when the soul, the soul, when they're made alive, verse 5, from the dead, the first thing, faith. They put faith in Jesus Christ. It is a gift of God. Back to Romans 8, verse 30. That's how faith comes from the dead soul. Made alive, a.k.a. effectually called, faith. And the consequence of that is God, boom, gavel down, double imputation, righteous in Christ permanently joined to Jesus. So, in that order, foreknowledge, predestined, eternity past, called in your life, faith in Christ, (coughs) cough, justification. Glory to God. Well, number five, the fifth and final chain. Link in the chain, I should say, the fifth action of God's sovereign grace. Well, what happens after you're justified? We're sanctified. We saw that in Romans 6, 7, much of 8. Why isn't God talking about that here? He mentioned it kind of at the end of verse 29, but the purpose here in the golden chain is to talk about the monergistic workings of salvation. Monergistic, 
mana one or just like one, God working, God's grace. In sanctification, it's synergistic. We, 100% us, 100% God, and everything else, even our faith, 100% God. Number five, fifth link in the chain, he glorifies those he saves. Praise God. He glorifies those he saves. He never walks away from the building project. Look at the end of verse 30. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Again, these are in a tense of completed action because for God, it's so done. It's in his decree. Whatever is decreed is done for God, even though it might not have experientially occurred yet in your life. I mean, we saw that in Ephesians 2.5. He made us alive. He seated us in heaven. For God, it's like you're already sitting in heaven with him. If you've put faith in Christ. So he glorified. This word refers to the finishing of our salvation, the theological term glorification. It means the permanent eradication of sin's damage spiritually and sin's damage physically. Death and the moral spiritual damage of sin permanently er eradicated. This is what we long for. Because it is those two things that are the source of daily sorrow. But Paul said, I have every day, every day in this life. The last link in the golden chain, no coincidence in the last one, the completion. How can God speak of us as already glorified in heaven? How, how can God say this? Because for God, again, what's decreed is done. He doesn't walk off the building project. He's sovereign. And as later in Romans 8, we'll come to say, for someone to like pull, pull the believer away from God such that they never make it to heaven, they'd have to break this chain, which means they'd have to like break God in pieces. It's impossible. This chain was forged in eternity past. It's hard for us to imagine glorification. No more sin. No more temptation to complain against God, to be tempted with desires that are displeasing to him, to be tempted to be unthankful, and more and more. This is what glorification means. No more death in heaven. It's going to be material. We were talking about this in Sunday equipping. God's always about land and material. It's not not floating around forever, right? There's kind of like three-ish stages of heaven. When does this happen? The first part of our glorification happens, 2 Corinthians 5.8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The instant you die, you're present with the Lord, sin is left here. You're not able to be bored, complaining, dissatisfied, discontent, depressed, discouraged, ever again. Instantly when you die, 2 Corinthians 5.8, Philippians 1.20 and 21. What about the physical part? That happens at the resurrection. When Christ returns after the rapture, everybody will have been resurrected with new bodies that are impossible to decay or to experience death. And then we, and then we will live in, I mean, read Revelation 20, 21, 22. It's brief, but it's different than now. By God's grace and your kindness this past July, I, I stood in this spot in the South Pacific 
I, I didn't even know places like this existed. I was 2,600 miles south of Honolulu, 4,000 miles northwest of Sydney, Australia, and Nowhereville, Waterville, Nowhereville. And it took a few planes and some boats to get to this place. And I've had the blessing of seeing beautiful beaches and oceanscapes, oceanscapes, and this was quite another thing. I didn't even know what to call this place. Like, what, what is this feature thing called? The natives there called it a lagoon in a lagoon. A lagoon inside a lagoon. Okay. And I remember when Leslie and my girls were standing there, I, I turned to them. I said, I can't believe what I'm looking at right now. I, I have, am I really here looking at this place, this lagoon in a lagoon right now? It's beyond the, you know, the doctored tropical photos that the advertisements do up beyond anything like that. But in comparison to what Revelation 21 and 22 tells us, what, what I saw, it will be like a rat alley, like a dumpster alley. Compared to what you who have, been, who have put your faith in Christ will see with eyes smell with a nose, hear with ears, walk on with feet one day in the new heavens and the new earth, Revelation 21, 22. Let me just read you a couple verses. Then he showed me a river, Revelation 22, 1, of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side, there was a river. Of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face. That's what will make heavenly so heavenly. Christ. All the other things are just side. Being with Christ. Never being able to sin against him again or each other. That's why a lot of people who say they want to go to heaven, they, they wouldn't like it. They would hate it. Because it's all about praising Christ, loving Christ, being with Christ, serving Christ, rejoicing with he who accomplished this for us all day long. They will see his face, his name will be on the foreheads, there will no longer be any night. Forever and ever, verse 6, these words are faithful and true. This sight will be so great, we'll need new actual eyes, new actually like olfactory and optic sensors. It'll be so great to take in, you'll need a new brain. That'll be good for me. So, so much running and celebrating with Christ to serve him with his people. You'll need new feet and new knees and a new heart and new hands to serve him with day and night and, and a new voice to praise him with. That'll also be good for me. Never offend anyone with my non-singing voice ever again. Unceasing joy. G. Campbell Morgan said this, quote, To me, the second coming is the perpetual light in the path which makes the present bearable. You get that. I never lay my head on the pillow without thinking that. Maybe before the morning breaks, the final morning may have dawned. I never begin my work without thinking perhaps he may interrupt my work and begin his own. Glorification. So, foreknowledge, the first link in the chain, answered the question, how and when did God set his love on us? Long time ago. Predestination answered the question, how does God secure our salvation that we'd be protected forever from enemies? 
That was predestination. Calling answers the question, how can we who are bent on rebellion, not seeking God, respond to the good news of Christ crucified? Calling. Justification answers the question, but having been awoken, how can we who are naturally rebellious and have violated God's law and have a profuse resume of doing so, how can we be right in his sight? Justification. And glorification answers the question, okay, what will be the final result? Will God be able to take me home? No more sin, no more death, funerals, tragedy, disease, injustice, or violence ever again. No more impurities, no more blasphemy of Christ's name that gives you sorrow every day. The righteous. God the Father will not fail to complete the work he began in you. And so what a great God. Who would not want to worship this God? Who would not want to bow the knee joyfully and eagerly and give their life to this God who has given everything, including his son, to them? Those of you who are delaying, you do not need to delay anymore. God is not delayed or balked or hesitated in showing his love to you, not even from eternity past, much less the cross. Those of you who are still stubborn in your will, and say, no, I will not. Oh, today, soften your heart. Call out to Christ. Admit to him that you're stubborn. And he says, I will not throw anyone away and cast them out who come to me. Just admit how rebellious you've been. He came not for the righteous, but sinners. And all of us, let us rest on Christ, through whom is salvation alone. Who would not want to worship him? His crucified arms are so wide open. Today is the season of salvation for you and for sinners like me and for not sures and stubborns and rebels and whoever. His wounds show that he has paid the price for you and invites you to come eagerly in this season of salvation. And we will celebrate his grace with the Lord's table here through the bread and the cup. No better way to celebrate. Before Jesus, the night before he was crucified, he said, I want you to like regularly celebrate with these symbols my love for you and the freeness thereof. And the night before he, he took the bread and broke it, the bread, he said, this, this is kind of like, it's like a picture of my body being broken because the laws demands, the law demands a penalty, and I'm going to stand in for you so that you can be justified and subsequently glorified. And then he took the cup, and the cup symbolizes and represents his blood that we be spilt because Genesis 2.17, God said in the garden, if you sin, death is the consequence, and without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. And so we take these, there's no, like, you don't get to closer to heaven by ingesting and eating or whatever, but it's highly, impo- highly important in its symbolism. Because in taking it, you're saying, I'm all in for Jesus. It's like I'm taking him in. Like I take food in. It becomes a part of me. I'm united to Christ. No, I'm not going to be perfect, but I want to live for him. I want to die for him. Only Christ and Christ alone can cover my violations of the law. His justification frees me from the burden of having to like, oh, does so-and-so like me? Am I accepted here? And taking in the elements is a symbol that by faith, I'm all in for Christ. 
And if you haven't been saved, if you've been rebellious and had a barnacle will, you can be saved and come partake for the first time today. Christ is that loving and salvation is that free and that instantly available through faith. But if you're not willing to humble yourself and be saved, or if you are a believer, and like we all do, times I do especially, if you sin and, and you're not willing to ask forgiveness, sit this one out. So as not to blaspheme the great and the loving and the gracious name of Jesus. But it doesn't have to be that way. You can just ask his forgiveness and confess the sin that he already knows to him. And 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and he's just, righteous, having died for it, to forgive us our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. I tell you today, friends, all of you, all of us, me, everybody ever born will stand before Christ one day. Absolutely. This is factual. This is future. This will happen. And there is one way for that way, that day to be a great day. And that's bowing the knee in childlike faith to Jesus Christ and receiving him. And it's available. There will be no excuses that day for saying, nah, I didn't know about it or I had a better idea or I was good enough. That, that won't work. And so Jesus says, come to me. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. We'll have the musicians come up. We'll give you time, give us all time to just pause and reflect on Christ's love for a few minutes. Thank him. Confess any sin that needs to be confessed to him. When you're ready, come grab the, the bread and the cup, and then we'll all take it together. Well, that night, the night before Jesus was crucified, again, he held up the bread as a symbol of his body to which our sins would be imputed and from which our righteousness would be imputed. Knowing that this was coming, knowing the horror of the cross, but motivated by his love for us, in spite of our sins, he held up the bread and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Take and remember some meal. Let's take it. And he held up the cup and said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant of my blood. New covenant, new promise. Of what? That by virtue of his life, the perfection thereof, obeying the commands, and then his death in our place, the blood seals our justification and in the future, our glorification. Let's take it together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you that what was otherwise impossible for us to be right with you, to have our conscience cleansed, the burden of the law uplifted, and entrance into heaven, you made possible from eternity past to eternity future, all through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father. I pray that this would motivate us to humility, knowing no one's better. We're all equally foreknown, equally predestined, equally called, equally justified, equally glorified. No one's better than another. No one's more predestined or glorified or justified. We could never earn this. Let us be motivated to worship what you've done for us. That's what it's about. Not what we did, but what you did for us. 
Let this motivate us to be lights in a dark world, that there is hope, and to keep our chin up, knowing that we have a great future. Give all of us strength this week, Father, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.